The Athletic. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening and welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. My name's Ali Maxwell. I'm joined today by the two MCs, Michael Cox and Mark Carey are with me. And, and Michael, really enjoyed your piece early this week. It was focusing on Tottenham Hotspur nil, Chelsea 3. But I was under the impression that in modern day football discourse, when a team wins and another loses, then it must mean one manager is good and one <laughs> manager is bad. But you've rather taken on the status quo here by writing and suggesting that actually both managers can take some credit for their strategies on Sunday. Yeah, I think we don't say that enough about football games. I find this especially with like big Champions League games, semi-finals, where the level's really high. And, it, you know, obviously there has to be a loser in terms of the game, but I don't think there has to be a loser in terms of analysis. Um, but weirdly, people are content to say, like, if a game has been terrible, people are happy to say both sides were bad and both managers got things wrong. But they're less willing to say that both managers got things right, which I think is interesting. But yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was quite a good game. Spurs were the better side first half. Chelsea adjusted their shape. Convincing in the end. We can give credit to them both, I say. I find it interesting in how you analyse a game, for example, where both teams have played poorly, in which case they, they may have evened each other out. And another game where both teams may have played very, very well at a very high level. But if both of them have played at that level, they may have cancelled each other out. Do you have a pretty good sense when you're watching a game, let's say a very even game of, yeah, this is a high quality even game or this is a very low quality even game? And, and how do you pick that out? Um, probably no more so than most people, I suppose. But I think you've just got to be honest about it. Like, you know, like I say, I think sometimes there are games where where both sides are bad. But I suppose when both sides are really bad, unless it's a big game, I tend to say to my editors, can I write about something else? Because it wasn't very interesting. <laughs> so maybe I just don't analyse those games anymore. Mark Kerry, you're not on such a long leash with your editors. You get told what to write and when to write it. Uh, uh, I'm just kidding. How are you doing this week? <laughs> no, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I like I said last time uh, I was on the podcast, I, like the coward that I am, I hide behind the numbers and don't pass any opinion. <laughs> Uh, or too much actual tactical analysis, but uh, yeah, no, I'm good. I uh, I did my data column uh, reflecting on on the weekend uh, as well, and just looked into some some interesting interesting stuff. I think from from that Chelsea Spurs game, it was Rudiger's goal was Chelsea's tenth goal scorer uh, so far this season, which is more than any other team. So it just shows that they've got goals coming from from all angles, and I think they've yeah they're certainly going to be one of the the leading uh, title title contenders mm. I think data insights from Mark and tactical ones from Michael we are well set to tackle this week's topic and we're going to take a look at, at three of the Premier League's Premier forward players Premier goal scorers you have to say of the last decade what's the hook well quite simply that there are three current Premier League players in and around the threshold for the Premier League's 100 club that is 100 Premier League goals two of them current Liverpool players and one of them a former Liverpool player now playing for Manchester City. Uh, Michael, Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, Raheem Sterling on the agenda today. We're going to look at how their careers have developed, how their styles and their roles have evolved, and maybe how Premier League football has evolved in that time as well to suit them or to help mould the players that they are today. But I must say, when we did a Bad Stats podcast, a popular one probably over a year ago now, uh, ever the friendly curmudgeon, you said you didn't much like round numbers. You didn't see why we always seem to care so much about round numbers, like 100 Premier League goals. So do you have an issue with this? 
No, I mean, I'm not militant about it. I mean, when uh, when Jim Hines became the first man to run sub 10 second 100 metres at Me- Mexico City in 1968, I wouldn't have been saying, well, it's not actually more impressive than going from 10.03 to 10.02. But <laughs> it's more of a kind of, you know, Harry Kane's 50th European appearance for Spurs. Mm. No one cares about that kind of thing, do they really? But no, the, the 100 club, I think, is quite nice. I mean, it's it's a relatively exclusive club. There's, well, we're coming up to 30 seasons of the Premier League. There's only 30 players in it. It'll be 32 once Mane and Sterling have got themselves in there. Um, and no, I think that is an achievement. 100 Premier League goals is is a lot. Requires a lot of things. Requires consistency. Obviously, you have to be prolific uh, in front of goal. It's Yeah, I think it's quite a nice little... Uh, Grouping, elite grouping, should we say, of uh, of Premier League players. So, had you been around, you'd have been okay with the commotion surrounding Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile mark. You know, I was going to use that analogy, and then I thought it's complicated by the fact that in itself, a mile is not really a round number. You know, so um, so I went for the one hundred meters instead because that is a very round number. Well, as it is. As we record, none of these three players are actually at that juicy round number. Mo Salah has surpassed it with 101 Premier League goals in 163 appearances. Sadio Mane is on 98 in 232 Premier League appearances. And Raheem Sterling on 97 from 294. All three of them have scored for more than one team, albeit have done the majority of their scoring for their current clubs. And I suppose as well as grouping them together because they're approaching this milestone towards the same time. Michael, can we also group these guys together in terms of their player profile, the the sorts of player that they are? Yeah, definitely. I think that's the most interesting thing because when you look at the players who are already on the, uh, in the 100 club, there's basically three types of players. There's out and out strikers. There's players who are more broadly number 10s, but still I think fours we would consider them. And then who would those be? Give me an uh, example. I I would say Teddy Sheringham. I mean, Mm -hmm. probably started off as more of a number nine, but dropped back to become... Um, a number 10 there's probably a few others you could argue Matt Letizia's sneaking in there as well uh, he's got 100 exactly um, and then there's I think there's three midfielders Giggs, Scholes and Gerrard who are in there really because they were around for a long time I mean 500 games or more whereas the players we're talking about um, you know as you as you just mentioned are on a 300 or fewer all of them so I think this is a slightly new type of player to reach the the 100 club they are wide forwards they're very much wide players in a 4-3-3 okay they have individually played in different roles but it's it's a slightly new type of player in terms of reaching this club of course Cristiano Ronaldo I think was was probably the first you know maybe him and I and Robin before were probably the first place to popularize being real goal scoring wingers in the 4-3-3 Ronaldo I think is uh on about 89 goals mm-hmm. is he uh, 87 goals at the moment I'm sure he'll reach it but yeah it does feel like a slightly new generation of uh, pure wide forwards and so not just a coincidence necessarily but, but maybe indicative of a, a change in how the game has been played at Premier League level and particularly who is scoring the goals uh, I guess you're kind of getting to the fact that these players were attacking wide forwards thrive in a way in the modern game that maybe they couldn't or wouldn't or maybe you think they would have in a different era, let's say 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, completely. I mean, 100 goals is a lot. We almost take it for granted that they've got to this number. But I mean, you look at the list, Didier Drogba scored 104 goals in 254 games, 
Mane's coming up to that mark in he'll probably do it in fewer games. And we don't really think of that as being unusual these days. Whereas, I suppose, 10, 15 years ago, if you were to say a player who's, well, I think barely ever played as a proper centre-forward is going to be getting, you know, as, as many goals as Drogba with a slightly better goal-scoring rate, you would have said that's that's almost off the charts. But the fact that three players are coming up to it and we we almost just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, yeah, of course they are. Mm. I think that is a very relatively significant shift over the last 10 years or so. I guess there's an extent to which this is a bit of a question of nature and nurture in footballing terms. These are elite, talented players uh, of their time, uh, but also perhaps helped and moulded by the style of play that's prevalent in in elite football at this point, that the types of managers that they've played under and the fact that the game has developed to this point where their skill set can be uh, that of uh, an elite goal-scoring wide forward where perhaps, it, you know, it's fun to suggest maybe 20 years ago or in the first decade of the Premier League, Michael, where, as you've written extensively about in a best-selling book, these players didn't exist. This position on the field was not being played by Premier League players in the first five years of the Premier League, of the Premier League let's say. I should correct you and say it's not technically a best-selling book, but thank you for the plug. Um <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I mean, there are always wingers who score goals. I mean, you think of someone like Andre Konchelskis, for example, Mark Overmars at Arsenal. I mean, he came from Ajax. He was very obviously a player who played in a classic 4-3-3 at Ajax and had to adjust to Arsenal. But yeah, there weren't many real wide forwards. And I guess with with Salah and Mane in particular, they're not there to supply a forward, really. Firmino's there to supply them. So that's been a slight change Mm -hmm. as well. I guess that's probably the influence of of Lionel Messi at, uh, at Barcelona and that kind of system. But yeah, it is quite quite a significant shift. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one just in terms of that formation of, of the players that we're talking about. Would they be wingers per se or would they be kind of one of a, a two up front if it were to be a an old school 4-4-2? Would they be the kind of the little man in a big man, little man 4-4-2 up front? Or would they be the, the wide players almost in the mould of a of a Ryan Giggs or, you know, David Beckham, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what necessarily the answer would be. I mean, given the fact that we're talking about how prolific they are in front of goal, you'd imagine that it would probably be just behind the the striker. But then what they do so well is obviously using their width. So um, it's more of a, a question than an answer in terms of my comment. But I just think it's interesting of where they would fit in eras gone by. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, even if when a team switches to like a 4 2 3 one, you know, where do they fit in there? I mean, Salah, there were a few games, was it the start of two seasons ago where Salah was briefly playing up front, really, mm. with Firmino just behind him? Yeah. So I think that shows where he would be now. But probably when he came to Liverpool, I don't think, we certainly wouldn't have considered him as prolific. I mean, he was mm. getting kind of 12, 15 goals in Serie A. He wasn't scoring 25, 30. So I guess he would have been a winger. Mane, Southampton often plays in number 10, where I thought he was pretty effective, good partnership with Pella. Sterling, I suppose, would be the most classic winger of uh, of the three, wouldn't he? Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. You get sometimes, I think, players who are just lucky or unlucky in terms of the, the time they're around, if, if that makes sense. I mean, you can flip it the other way. Like, what would David Beckham be today? You know, if he played in this Liverpool side, I suppose he'd either be the right centre midfield or maybe even a right back, you know, with his crossing ability. Probably Alexander-Arnold is the player most similar in mm in style to him. So yeah, it's interesting. And do you think as part of this nature and nurture question, Mark, 
could the rise in analytical thinking within football have, have played a part? I think we know, for example, that uh, that has led to many less shots being taken from range, from outside the box, low probability uh, chances, in other words. But but when it comes to goal-scoring wide players, I, I wonder whether uh, an understanding that your primary attacking tactic being getting it wide, swinging in, crosses in and, and hoping for the best, which is not considered a particularly efficient way of scoring, certainly not at the very top level, whether that may, may have played a part here as well. Yeah, I think in terms of the, the analytics movement, it's, it's trying to increase ways that you can you can score goals and win games, which is obviously the, the primary aim. And I think, yeah, if you can get, especially with a front three rather than a front two, even though I know that sometimes that centre of the three can often drop back thinking about the Firmino role, then simply just by sheer number, three is more than two in terms of 4-4-2 and 4-3-3. So I think that it's maximising that. And I know that Michael spoke you know, ex- extensively in, in his pieces about it can turn into then a front five if you then bring the fullbacks into it as well. So in- increasing the the opportunities to score a goal and obviously the, the chances and, as you say, the high quality chances. Um, yeah, maybe if not causation, then certainly there seems to be some sort of relationship or correlation between more insight and more information at our, at our fingertips to work out how we can maximise those opportunities um, and, yeah, change in formation. And I suppose that there was a realisation and understanding, Michael, we've spoken about inverted wingers before and the rise of inverting your wingers and on a very basic level, turning them from crossing wingers to shooting wingers was a, an understanding that by inverting them, they would come inside onto their stronger foot into decent shooting locations, areas of the pitch where they could actually get a much more high quality shot off than from wide areas on their correct side, if you will, where it's a little harder to actually find a a good angle, I suppose, to to get a high quality shot off. Yeah, I suppose the most interesting one in this sense is Sterling, um, because I think he was probably at his best at Manchester City when he was playing as a natural winger, when him and and Sané were going down the outsides and Mm. crossing for one another. But yeah, it does seem standard now that these players are uh, more adept than ever before in shooting and yeah part of that is, is because they're being developed I think as inverted wingers whereas 10 years ago they're probably players who made a shift midway through their career This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's zoom in on the individuals. We'll start with Mo Salah because he has hit the number, 100. He's gone past it, in fact, and he's done it in the uh, fewest games by some distance, really. Mark, statistics, data-wise, what jumps out at you from Mo Salah's goal-scoring numbers in the Premier League? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's worth reminding all of us uh, just how good he has been since he... I know that obviously he was at Chelsea. I think we can all just kind of park that for now because he didn't get the, the minutes... Um, that he probably should have. But since he he joined Liverpool, I looked at the the goals per 90 rate of all the players in the Premier League since Salah joined in in 2017-18. And he has the third best rate of any player to play 
above 900 minutes, which even across that multiple seasons is very small or very low threshold, I should say. Um, but he scored 0.71 goals per 90 across the 150 odd games, which is a rate that's better than than two goals every three games. So like that that period of time, a long period of time, just how many goals he scored in that period and the rate is is quite something. And he's below only Sergio Aguero, who has 0.86 per 90. And almost technically with a caveat of um, of Gareth Bale being 1.1 per 90. But then you think about the context of which that single season, obviously last season where he was coming on as a sub and scoring, you know, sometimes where it inflated his, his goals. So I'm almost not counting that. So mm-hmm. if you look at the threshold of anyone who's played more than 100 games uh, in that period, then Salah would be top in terms of the, the rate of goals that he scored. So that, that rate's better than Harry Kane, just about. It's better than Vardy. It's better than Aubameyang, Rashford, Son, and of course, Mane uh, and Sterling. So I think just in terms of the numbers, it's just worth pointing out just just how high that that rate of goal scoring has been on a, on a per 90 basis. So uh, yeah, he's pretty prolific. And when we spoke to you two weeks ago, about your piece on consistency, uh, particularly looking at, at the elite attacking players in the top five European leagues. Again, Salah came out very, very well on that front. Yeah, exactly. I think it's exactly right in terms of, you know, we can talk about his goal scoring rate and his finishing ability, but obviously what's key is that he gets into those chances to, to score and does so regularly. So you're obviously going to have a better chance of scoring if you get into better opportunities um, and better positions to score as well. And in that regard, he has been yeah incredibly consistent. As you say, we, we spoke about that variability and he had such a small variability, one of the smallest across the, the top forwards, across the top five European leagues. That small variability in just how yeah, how different it is in the in the opportunity, the number of opportunities he gets per game, um, and I think it is important to say as well as all that in terms of that variability is, as you mentioned, I think that he's available all the time. I think I looked into the numbers, and if I'm not mistaken, I think he's only missed seven league games since he arrived at Liverpool. So I think that's you know this, we talk about consistency in terms of goal scoring, getting chances, but also it's quite remarkable just how available he has been. To, and to get that, keep that form and keep that consistency uh, as well. So I think, you know, you talk about robust players like Messi and Ronaldo, how they're always available for games. I think you can include Salah, certainly in the most recent years, mm. um, in that in that category as well. And one of the, the greatest signings, surely, in the Premier League era for, for so many different reasons. Uh, and Michael, you watch quite a lot of Italian football and uh, on loan from Chelsea at Fiorentina and then Roma and then permanently at Roma, of course. Was Salah's development into this elite goal-scoring wide forward in evidence then? Or did he still have some way to go? How much has he improved uh, on that front under Klopp? Well, I remember watching him at Fiorentina and he was playing almost as a number 10 second striker in a very counter-attacking side. And I couldn't believe how good he was. I mean, I've never seen anyone, maybe aside from Messi, I've never really seen anyone dribble with the ball as directly as he did through the centre when he was at Fiorentina. Then he went to Roma and yeah, he was he was out on the flank and he was it became a bit more prolific. But I don't think anyone would ever have considered that he would be a, a Premier League golden boot winner. You know, he was, you know, scores a good amount of goals for a winger, but not a not the most prolific player in the league. I, I think that was really implausible when Liverpool signed him. I don't think they signed him to score that many goals. I think he probably scored about twice as many as, as people would have <laughs> expected. But yeah, it was it was good watching him in Serie A because 
I still think Syria, the, the defenders and the, the general speed of play is a little bit more sedate compared to the Premier League and his speed and directness just stood out a million miles. But um, It's yeah. interesting, isn't it, that that to me shows an impressive adaptability as well. If the Roma side in which he thrived and the position in which he played was more about counter-attacking, moving into space and clearly we've seen that ability in spades over time at Liverpool. But in general, this Liverpool side hasn't been afforded as many counter-attacking opportunities by virtue of them being one of the dominant sides and and and, and teams often just sitting in, uh, especially at Anfield. So the fact that he's been able to score a new type of goal almost over and over and over again speaks to the, the quality that he always had in his locker. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I remember one of the first uh, few months where Mane and Sal- uh, Salah were together at Liverpool. They played away at the Olympic Stadium um, and won 4-1, 5-1 against West Ham and they scored a couple of brilliant counter-attacking goals. It felt like that was the template. But you're right, you can't just rely on that. And uh, there have been so many more variations to the way Liverpool attack. And uh, I mean, they're also they're also lucky in a way that they play alongside or ahead of the two most... Uh, creative fullbacks in the league because mm. Alexander Arnold and, and Robertson obviously dominate the flanks and they can concentrate on shifting inside and to narrow a goal scoring positions so um, yeah the dual development has been incredible and out of Salah Mane Sterling does Mo Salah have the, the most sort of classic recognisable type of goal a trademark if you will yeah I, I think that is true I mean you know, was it three years ago he won the, the Puskas Award for that quite forgettable goal against Everton, which was very, very odd. But that is a it kind of does encapsulate the kind of goal he scores, obviously cutting inside onto his left. Um, I guess a la Ian Robin, but I think Robin tends to strike from or tended to strike from long range, whereas Salah is a kind of like 15 yards out, I suppose. Um, I think only six of his 101 have been outside the box which I think is a little bit, not necessarily surprising, but... Um, I'll give you surprising. I'll give you that. Okay. Take it. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. For a player with such a good left foot who is cutting inside, you probably think he'd get more than 6% of his goals from outside the box. Um, I, I looked at the stats actually because I remember thinking he, he he's so dependent on his left foot, particularly compared to Mane and, and Sterling. I thought maybe that was an area of his game that he'd want to develop and become more comfortable on his right. But in his four complete seasons, you look at how many goals he scored with his right foot and it's gone from five to four to two to one. So he is just honing in on his strengths, really, rather than seeking to become uh, an all-rounder. He's also benefited from the fact that he's had a very consistent position uh, under Klopp at Liverpool. I suppose, as we'll talk about in a second, Mane had to shift across from right to left when Salah arrived. And Klopp, you know, e- even in making quite a lot of alterations over the years, as as all elite managers do, and we talk about the different positions that Trent Alexander-Arnold takes up now and what he's done with fullbacks over time, Salah's role and position in Klopp's system has been very consistent. Yeah, I mean, it was it was like you say a, a pretty big decision to um, to shift Mane in a way. I mean, he'd been voted into the PFA Team of the Year for that season before um, before Salah came. Slightly odd thing, especially with them having a slightly odd relationship, is that they've never been in the PFA Team of the Year together. It's always been either one or the other. I think Mane twice, Salah three times. But yeah, for Mane to have such a good season, and then you say, actually, you're going to shift to the other side. I mean, I I think it was fair to suspect he wouldn't have that many problems with it as a right-foot player. 
uh, you know, cutting inside. But yeah, it was a big, was a big decision. Of course, it's, it's worked very well. And I guess another thing to say is that Salah has a lot of shots. I mean, he, he, he does attempt a lot of shots. And the funny thing about him is he tends to have maybe once a game or once every two games, he does attempt a shot that he just gets completely wrong, <laughs> which I find quite heartening. You know, like when Leo Messi will do that maybe twice a season and the commentators say, like, oh, he is human after all. I don't think you'd ever say that about Salah because it's obvious that he is human because I think he does get quite a lot woefully wrong. Um, but of course, yeah, justifies his, his number of shots with, with how many scores. I think he can be quite a frustrating figure sometimes if you're a Liverpool fan to, to see that because sometimes as well, it, talking about that relationship with Mane, there's there's often other people in better positions to score or at least shoot than, than some of the shots that he chooses, which is quite frustrating as I say as a fan I, again I looked into the, the numbers on that one I think that he himself Salah plays the numbers game a little bit in that just he has such a high volume of shots so again since he's arrived he's averaged 3.9 shots per 90 um, which is only bettered by Sergio Aguero again in that time and a similar sort of number to Harry Kane so I think he is just because he's so desperate he's he's quite brutal in terms of wanting to to be the best and the the top goal scorer in the team and in the league I think he does himself play the numbers game and just goes on volume <laughs> um, sometimes for, for better sometimes for worse well I'm sure Sadio Mane would consider that being teammates with Mo Salah has mostly been for better and in some aspects maybe been for worse as well let's talk about Sadio Mane because of course his first 21 Premier League goals Michael were not scored for Liverpool they were scored for Southampton he signed for them from Salzburg and this was an excellent piece of recruitment from Southampton you have to say how, how would you describe his first two years in English football yeah he was he was always very good very lively I didn't think he'd become quite such a good player but I mean three of those 21 goals comprised the fastest hat-trick in Premier League history uh, Southampton towards the end of the season uh, against Aston Villa. Actually got a mention in the House of Commons that, weirdly, <laughs> when uh, Southampton's incoming MP, Royston Smith, 2015, mentioned it in his first ever speech. Imagine that, you spent your whole life trying to become an MP and one of the first things you mention is a Sadio Mane hat-trick. Quite bizarre. But yeah, he was very good. Like I said earlier, he played a bit as a number 10. I quite liked him there. Because it was a good partnership with, with Graziano Pella. Pella was a good traditional centre-forward, but he had no pace, really. And Mane had that in abundance. And I like the way Pella came towards the play. Mane went behind. I thought that worked really well. But yeah, I mean, not many not many of the top teams play number 10 at the moment, do they really? I mean, Fernandes is probably the exception. And I think it was all, it was obvious that he was going to become a, a wide player once he, once he made the inevitable move to a big club. But again, you know, same with Salah. I didn't expect him to come anywhere near this prolific, really. He's, uh, he's always been a good player, a lively player, but to score that number of goals is just a, a massive shift from what I expected. Mm. Mark, what do you think being moved from the right wing, where, as mentioned, he was selected in the PFA Team of the Year for Liverpool playing right wing, over to the left, upon Salah's arrival. What do you think that did for Mane and the way that he was impacting the game for Liverpool? Yeah, well, I looked at his goals from that, that first season that he was at Liverpool, which, by the way, he was integral to, to helping Liverpool get to back into the Champions League that season as well. So I think him and Coutinho were joint top goal scorers that season with 13. Um, but I look back at the goals that he scored that season. He very much, 
he wasn't necessarily dribbling down the right and then scoring, which I'm sure we might even mention, the Arsenal goal, the first mm. goal, which was that. But other than that, it, he sort of came from from the outside in and made diagonal runs more centrally into the box, obviously from the right side, um, and was, was did very well off the back of it. So um, he was almost playing kind of as the the role that he sort of played with Pella in terms of being more of a, a partnership almost, you know, a bit more centrally. But um, yeah, when he when he went on to the left, it was it was kind of, as you say, really, I suppose, with that inverted winger being more able to come in on his right and, and shoot. And I think we can come on to it in a little bit of just how much he is able to also go on to his left and maybe beat his man, you know, on the outside as well as the inside, which I don't think... Uh, I think it's fair to say that Salah isn't as able to to do that. So he's he's a little bit more versatile than uh, than Salah. So he's able to to be pushed onto the left, whereas I don't think the opposite would have been true for Salah. Yeah, certainly this isn't a symmetrical partnership, is it, Michael? They, they feel like quite different players, um, and I wonder what you think the differences are between how they score their goals. You know, we're talking about them as as goal scorers right now. So when you think of of Salah, you mentioned I and Robin comparisons being fairly apt what about Mane what are the main differences between him and Salah as goal scorers well he scored 27 of his near 100 goals with his weaker foot um, which is obviously a pretty high percentage probably not quite as high as I would have expected actually I just think of him as so capable with either side I think one of the interesting things that Mane is really good at is you know we think of players being two-footed in terms of when they're facing the goal and how dangerous that is. Look at someone like Mason Greenwood, I think is obvious. Defenders don't know which way to show him. But Mane gets the ball in so many tight situations and I think his ability to turn quickly and turn either either way, really, um, it seems to bring a, a decent amount of his goals. There's one he scored against Leeds weekend before last that I thought was very rep- reminiscent of a goal he scored away at West Ham um, probably three years ago, I think. And he just left one of the defenders on the on the floor because they had no idea which way he was going to go. Mm. And that must be so difficult to play against. A combination of him going both ways and just being really quick on the turn. I mean, there's other Premier League players over the years. I think there's very good you know, strikers that are very good on the turn. Someone like Jermaine Defoe, for example. But he generally knew which way he was going to go. And I just think that ability to spin um, is, is not just useful for scoring goals because I think he's a, a selfless player as well which uh, maybe you wouldn't say about Salah. And I think that's obviously been the a bone of contention between the two of them. Yeah, I do agree that he is really sharp on the on the turn. He can just suddenly have that injection of pace. But um, I want to back up your statement with the numbers as well, Michael, just to say that I used data from FB Ref um, and looking at how two-footed a player is. And, and Mane, uh, in terms of footedness, you can say that he's 75% right-footed. Uh, and you compare that with Salah, who's 84% left-footed. So it obviously passes the eye test. We know it to be true, but very much backed up by the numbers that, that Mane is a little bit more able to to go both ways and, and use his left foot as well. I think just while we're sort of talking about differences between Salah and, and Mane, I think that Mane is far more kind of aerially dominant or poses a bit more of an aerial threat. As you'd imagine, obviously, Salah is just that bit smaller. But I looked into how many shots uh, are with their head uh, between the two of them and 17% of, of Mane's shots since he's been in the Premier League uh, 17% have been uh, a header whereas you compare that with Salah just 5% again you'd, you know, you'd imagine that would pass the eye test that, that looks like it makes sense um, but it's just again goes to show that Mane is he's very strong to, to beat his man but he is also pretty strong in the air and a threat from all over and Mark 
in my head, he feels slightly less likely to pick up the ball maybe in the inside left channel, cut inside and, and go from range with his right foot compared to his, his uh, teammate on the other side, Salah. Is that, is that backed up by the numbers? Yeah, well, I, I haven't looked exactly at, at the location, which I should do kind of across the, the years. But I think that I did look at how many, well, the percentage of shots that were actually outside the box as well that we spoke about before. And I think they are pretty similar between the two of them in, in both being around 80%. Um, of their shots are, are inside the box. Um, so somewhat similar in terms of their shot selection. Again, the, the average quality of their shots, so I think we've obviously been spoken a lot about on the podcast before in terms of XG per shot. So essentially on average, what's the, the quality of a, a given shot that, that either player takes? And uh, both of their XG per shot is about 0.15. So on average, there's about a 15% chance of their their shots uh, obviously turning into a goal. So they are quite similar in terms of their, mm -hmm. if not their shot location, then their shot, their shot selection in terms of the quality. Just the two goals in his number from outside the box and no penalties as well. Just a real, that's there's a real purity to that, which I, uh, I like and respect. Um, Mark, all of these guys have been scoring goals at Premier League level for, for multiple years now. Mane in particular has had one quite stark off year and that was last season. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too sure what happened. I mean, he didn't know himself, did he? I think he went to see a, a specialist or a physio or maybe even a psychologist to work out exactly what was happening because he seemed like he was doing everything right last season, but but not scoring. And I guess that's kind of backed up by the numbers as well because I looked into it in terms of his, his non-penalty XG, but as you say, there's, there's no point in looking at the non-penalty or distinguishing because he didn't take penalties anyway. But um, he had a non-penalty XG of 0.45 per 90 last season, which the only reason I'm saying that specifically is that that is the same as his previous three seasons. So in terms of that, un those underlying numbers and the positions that he's getting in, very much the same as his previous seasons where obviously he was certainly doing the right thing, but, you know, performing and scoring at a rate just above expectation. And I, I don't know if it's just variability. It could have been a bit of bad luck and it was a bit of a an anomalous year for Liverpool last season anyway, but everything looked as though it was, you know, he was in a good position, certainly in the, the positions that he was getting himself into, but he was simply scoring at a rate far below um, where you'd expect him to be. So the underlying numbers did look strong, but um, I, I, I couldn't pinpoint it to anything. I, I don't know if this is just a bit too overly critical, but I feel like sometimes on the ball as well, when he picks the ball up, maybe collects it, he is sometimes a little bit relaxed, but a little bit too relaxed sometimes and that he slows it down. And I think the, the game against Leeds recently, he had about what felt like about 71 shots. So I think he had more shots than Leeds in that, in that game. And it, it, he might just not have that kind of cutting edge as much as Salah, where he's absolutely desperate to score. And that might be a little bit overly critical, overly harsh, but I feel like sometimes he is a little bit lax um, or relaxed on, on the ball and maybe in front of goal as well. So maybe it was just a, a really, I think it seemed just like a really poor bit of luck, I think, last season. Michael wrote a whole piece on Mane's performance against Leeds United. Very enamoured, weren't you, Michael? Perhaps not with the finishing, but what you touched on earlier, that perhaps that extra dimension that he has outside the box and, and in general play, the, the spin move, if you will, the ability to go either way. Yeah, his movement was really good. I like the way he received the ball and I think probably playing against Leeds suits him. You know, he's a player who, who likes running into space, can receive the ball to feet with an opponent on him and, and spin him. So yeah, it was, I think it was a really, um, I mean, his, his, his decision making in the final third was a bit questionable, but I thought after a slightly difficult opening for Liverpool, I thought he was the player who put them in charge. 
Let's talk about Raheem Sterling next because he is very close to the landmark. I'm interested in his development. We've done whole podcasts, two of them, in fact, on Cristiano Ronaldo, one recently upon signing for Manchester United and one just over a year ago to, to discuss what sort of player he was. And in that, we talked about his incredible development, almost unique development in terms of his his role, Michael, from tricky winger to pure goal scorer. And it strikes me that Sterling, to a lesser extent than Ronaldo, but probably more than anyone else I can think of, has, has done something similar. If you look at his goals per 90 stats, which I did on FB Ref, uh, in his first four full Premier League seasons, two of which were with Liverpool and two with Man City, you're looking at 0.37 goals per 90, 0.21, 0.28, 0.25, um, good goal scoring numbers for a wide player you have to say but then an explosion in, uh, from basically 17 18 onwards 0.63 0.55 0 0.68 and a bit of a dip last season what happened at that point in sterling's career to lead to this transformation i think he changed his game and focused really on getting into goal scoring positions uh, i think it's, it's really been a, a tactical thing a positional thing i mean at the start of his career he was almost mocked a little bit for not being a very comfortable finisher and I still think sometimes when he gets the ball in one-on-one -on -one situations is he's slightly less convincing than other players even though I'm not sure that is reflected in the numbers but he's always been very tactically intelligent Sterling I think that's the most underrated feature of this game he came through as a winger of course but Brendan Rodgers played him as a number 10 and he did a very good job there I remember when England went to the World Cup in 2014 and there was a whole thing about who's going to track Pirlo because of Rooney, Rooney hadn't done it two years previously at the Euros. It was Sterling who played as number 10 and did a decent job on Pirlo. He also played his wing back a little bit um, under Rodgers when you know he was quite young and that was a difficult role. And it was almost uh, you know a similar thing. You're having to adjust to a different situation, a different role. And he's been very, very good at turning up in the right place at the right time in goal-scoring situations. Mm. And, I mean, you look at uh, some of the stats. I mean, he's scored, what, 98 goals. 32 have been inside the six-yard box. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the mark of a real poach. There's not many goals really scored inside the six-yard box. Mm. But Sterling's doing it time and time again. Um, and, yeah, th that's what it's been about. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, over the last few years, roughly a period that coincides with Sterling's explosion, we've been chatting about expected goals and that kind of thing. I would say he's one of the players who has, whether literally or coincidentally, learned the lessons of XG. He, he just gets into unmissable positions and City were very good at putting the ball on the plate for him. I love that this is dovetailing perfectly that I can absolutely back up what you're saying, Michael, <laughs> with the numbers, which is perfect. But uh, I, I think to kind of say what might have sparked the transformation as well, I think you've got to give credit to, to Pep Guardiola in allowing Sterling or encouraging Sterling to get into those positions. And as Michael mentioned before, that, that Sané on the left and Sterling on the right worked so well in terms of Sterling popping up at the, the back post and, and getting into positions like that. But um I looked into the numbers and the volume of his shots hadn't really dramatically changed all that much in that sort of transformation period. It's still two to three shots per 90, but exactly as Michael said, the quality of the shots, that those XG, that XG per shot, so the average quality of, of that given shot went up significantly. So previously he was around 0.11, so about a 10% chance of, of scoring on average with a, with a given shot. And from that 17-18 season onwards, that went up to 0.18. So give or take nearly, you know, 
then 20% chance. So nearly double the the quality of an average chance that he he found himself in. So mm. again, it comes back to those those six yard shots, um, being in far better positions to score, um, and again playing playing the numbers game and just getting into higher probability uh, areas to to score. And it clearly was was lucrative. I'm interested to know, Mark. Do you know if his dribbling numbers, his ball carrying numbers? changed or dropped rather when his goal scoring increased so much i'm a self-confessed liverpool fan i wasn't going to say that but i I remember watching him from um i actually did used to go and watch liverpool reserve sometimes and saw him just dribble so much and he was head and Mm. shoulders above everyone else and he would just dribble for fun and then when he got into the first team he was dribbling still quite significantly it was about six take-ons using opta's uh, data six take-ons or six dribbles um on average, when he was breaking into the team before he, uh, for his final season at Liverpool, about 14, 15 season. Um, and that dropped a little bit to, to between four and five uh, at Man City. So again, just being a little bit sharper. And it doesn't sound like too much of a difference, but you know, across the course of a season, that that is quite quite a lot fewer. And maybe he was, as Michael said, making more intelligent runs off the ball. Um, and rather than yeah using his his energy too much on the dribbling, it was more on making sure that the pass was good and making sure he had better runs off the ball. So yeah, again, very much backed up with the numbers that he was being a bit more clinical, should we say? Mm. Uh, you've obviously followed his career very closely, Mark. Do do you feel like Sterling is underrated by the average football fan? Yeah, I, I, again, I think it comes back to what what Michael said in terms of people throw the whole poor finishing ability at him um, and he hasn't really been able to to shake that off I don't think too much I think it's a bit unfortunate that sometimes he's had some high profile misses I think it was the Leon miss in the quarterfinals of the Champions League um, if not last season maybe the season before I think it was now that I think people tend to to remember those sorts of things and think that he's a poorer finisher than than he is but I think if you look across his whole league career, which is obviously a great sample size to have, his his non-penalty expected goals has been 92.4 goals uh, and he scored 96 goals. So in terms of that finishing ability, he's, again, across a big old sample, he's there or thereabouts. And I think if you can score even just a little bit over or at least at your expected goals, then you can't be accused of being a, a really poor finisher. So uh, I think that, yeah, I think he is a little bit... Um, underrated or underappreciated and I think that everything that, that Michael said that that movement the the timing um, the body position and things like the first touch that Guardiola certainly honed in him are things that he's he's really skilled at as well so it's not just about his finishing ability I think he's he's skilled in so many other areas mm. and Michael although he's two or three years younger than Salah and Mane feels like at this exact moment in time his position his starting spot at his club is more under threat. Uh, it's an interesting time to be talking about Sterling. He's only started two of City's five Premier League games this season. He didn't start their opening Champions League group stage match. And I wonder whether there might be a, a little bit of leeway in terms of post-Euros recuperation, but also maybe a sign that his his grip on that regular starting berth is loosening a bit. Yeah, I'm anxious to City correspondent Sam Lee is suggested he would have been happy to move on in the summer if there'd been an offer from a you know a reasonable side for him. Um, I think the Grealish shining affects his position. Obviously, Grealish can play on the, has played a bit on the left, may play as a number eight as well, but that is a, a player who's uh, affecting his status. Um, Mahrez's improvement on the other flank means there's, there's few opportunities 
on the right. And I think he loses out with with City playing inverted wingers. I mean, like I say, my favourite Sterling era really was when he was playing in the same side as Leroy Sané. Mm. That meant he was going down the line a lot and it also meant that Sané was, himself was going down the line and cutting the ball across a six-yard box for tap-ins for Sterling at the far post. If Sterling starts on the left, he can cut inside and shoot with his right. But if Mahrez is on the other side, he doesn't go down the line that much and isn't going to be playing those kind of angled passes across the six-yard box. So I think there's fewer goal-scoring opportunities there for him than there were a few years ago. So, yeah, he's he's, he's on the outside looking in, I think, at City at the moment. Mm. I don't think it's a, a coincidence he's only started two of the five. I think he's yeah having to, to fight his way into the team. That's interesting what, what you said about Sammy suggesting he would have been happy to leave. I, I guess one of the things about Sterling, which I don't mean necessarily as a criticism of him, but but mainly a point of interest, is let's say that there are plenty of teams who could afford to sign him off Manchester City, which is probably not true. Where do you think he fits elsewhere at elite level, Michael? Do, do you think Sterling has an obvious fit in pretty much any top 10 team in Europe or do you think maybe compared to some other players uh, there's there's an extent to which he needs the right system to get the very best out of him in terms of elite goal scoring numbers? I think he's probably shown he's adaptable enough to play a number of roles. I mean for England he's played as, as a second striker almost at times going in behind and did that very well. Sané, I, I was never convinced by Sané as a real individual. I thought Guardiola made a very particular role for him suited him down to the ground. I haven't been that surprised to see his struggles at Bayern, especially when you consider, I mean, he at times struggled to, to break into the Germany team, even the Germany squad for the last World Cup. So I, I think Sterling's more of an all-rounder, but whether we'll see him really at that elite level of two or three years ago when he worked really well in, in Guardiola's system, I don't know. But I, I imagine almost every Premier League side, with the exception of those who are overloaded on talent already, would, would want him in their, in their squad. And that leads on quite nicely to, to a question about their managers and a manager's role in a player's development and their success because you can't get away from the incredible success of these players as individuals. And I think over the last 40 minutes, we've discussed just why they should get so much credit for that. But it's also hard to separate um, where they've been and, and particularly who they've played for uh, in Sterling's instance, Pep particularly, uh, and for Mane and Salah Klopp, two of the, the, the best managers in the world um, in the last decade or so. So, I, I mean, while it's clear that these guys were already on the path to becoming elite players when they signed for their current clubs, Michael, is it is it fair to bring up the point, I don't want to call it a caveat, but more just a point of interest, that in playing for Pep and Klopp, and particularly in their tactical systems, that's been a key factor in, in these three players hitting the heights that they have. Yeah, I found an interesting article yesterday that was uh, from when Mane was at Southampton and Manchester United were interested in him. And they instead went for Anthony Martial. And you wonder whether a player like Martial, who had clearly tremendous talent as a as a teenager, I think, when Manchester United signed him, if, if he'd been playing along uh, under Klopp or Guardiola, whether he would have pushed on and whether he would have been this kind of elite 20 goal a season player as well. Yeah, it is about circumstance. It is about a role in the side. It is about the the development you make under managers. And um, yeah, both of these these coaches, I think, have shown consistently they can improve individuals. And I think that's almost, it's gone, it sometimes goes unnoticed now because people talk, talk so much about transfers and recruitment. And there's almost this attitude that 
a player's success at a club is is solely a success for the, the the people who brought him in. Sometimes it's quite a raw player that is is converted into something much more. Mm. And I think you can say that of all all three of these players under their current manager. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask. They're all around the same number of Premier League goals at this stage. That uh, around the round number of 100. Which of these three do you think will end their career with the most Premier League goals? I'm controversially going to go for Sterling. I mean, he has got age on his side. Um, I mean, he's he's taken a lot longer to hit roughly the same amount of goals as the other two. But a few things come into it. I mean, Salah and Mane, I would think, are probably more likely to leave the Premier League mm-hmm. than Sterling. I feel like Sterling will be here until he retires. Whereas Salah has flirted with Real Madrid in the past. Maybe that's not on the cards. Mane, I can imagine him attracting a lot of uh, foreign clubs as well. But... Sterling seems quite settled in the uh, in the northwest, so I'm going to go for him. Sensible answer, uh, Mark. What do you think? Yeah, that was that was a good caveat because I was going to go for Salah, but I think there's there's ifs and buts, isn't there, as to whether he'll sign a new contract, whether he'll stay sort of in the uh, the long term. But I think given just how all things, if all things were to continue as they are, I think given just how kind of cutthroat Salah is in, in wanting to score and again come back to his availability of just always being being on the pitch and he's also a, a penalty taker which I know that we've spoken about before he, he can pad out his numbers with penalties if things would continue as they were I'd say Salah um, for me even though he's yeah he is a bit old he's 29 but um, I was listening to the Red Agenda um, the Liverpool Athletic podcast and uh, James Pearce and Simon Hughes were saying he is similar to Ronaldo in being so obsessed with his physique and his fitness and you just think he could be if he does of course stay at Liverpool he could be one of those to still be around at least playing at the elite level mm. for the next seven eight years maybe so if he would if he were to stay in the Premier League you could you could certainly see him breaking some more records you brought this upon yourself by admitting that you were and I quote, a self-confessed Liverpool fan. <laughs> if I said, I'm going to take one of Salah and Mane away from you and you can have the other one for as long as you want, but only one of them, who would you choose? You know, after everything I've just said about Salah, I, I just, just something about Mane and the way that he plays, it's just, just, I just think is really exciting. I think he's, he's quite unconventional in the, the way that he can go, you know, either way you can spin so quickly. So I think as an all-round kind of, entertainment value I would actually go for Mane and I know this this podcast episode is about goals but I think he, he offers so much more than that and I remember speaking to someone about how he just the way that he brings the ball down and unconventionally it doesn't wait for it to even hit his foot sometimes he'll use all different body parts just to make sure that he's just in total control of the ball and I, I just really enjoy watching him despite him maybe not being as prolific a goal scorer. Well as not a self-confessed Liverpool fan uh, I definitely gained a wider appreciation for Mane's all-round game when reading Michael's piece the other day about him. Uh, if you haven't read that, do go and do so. Uh, you can search for Michael Cox uh, on the author's section of The Athletic website. You can read everything he's ever written and do the same for Mark Carey as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you should go if you don't have an Athletic subscription, but you would like to read everything that these two MCs are writing on site. You'll get a 33% discount off your annual subscription if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tactics and sign up today. Hope you've enjoyed this episode looking at Mo Salah, Sadio Mane and Raheem Sterling. And a huge thank you to 
the athletics social media maestro, Adam Jones, for suggesting this topic. As soon as we saw it, we knew it'd be a good one for us to get our teeth stuck into. And a huge thank you to Michael and, and to Mark for digging out numbers, analysis, opinions to flesh it out. It's been a real joy to record with you guys this week. And I'm already looking forward to next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. If you make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed, you'll get it straight out the oven. So do join us again. And thanks for listening to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast brought to you by The Athletic. The Athletic.